Hello and welcome to the Drug Policy Voices podcast. This is an ESRC-funded research project which aims to engage people who use drugs into debates about drug policy. Each month we'll speak about the findings of our research, discuss the hot topics connected to drug use and drug policy, and talk about the ways in which you can participate in our research. Our vision is to educate, inform and amplify your voices. To find out more information about us, including research ethics, privacy statements and where to go for advice and support, you can visit our website at www.drugpolicyvoices.co.uk. Hello listeners, welcome to episode 6. In this episode, we discuss criminal justice, drug policy and the law. In particular, we talk about stop and search, highlighting the ongoing disproportionate impact this has on people of colour and the importance of listening to people about their experiences and interactions with the police. This is something that we at Drug Policy Voices are focusing on within our research and is a really important aspect of our project. Of course, we talk about drug policy and the changes that are required to address these issues. This is a really important debate which highlights current injustices within the criminal justice system. I'm sure it'll give you plenty of food for thought. Now, on to the guest chat. Hello listeners, Um, welcome to episode six, uh, where we're delighted to introduce to you Dr Laura Garius, who is the policy lead at Release, and Jesse Bernard, who's the youth lead for the Why Stop Project, which is partnered with Release and Stopwatch. So welcome to Jesse and Laura. Um, So Jesse and Laura, could you tell us then about, you know, your organisations, who you work for and what role you have within those organisations? I'll go to you first, Laura. Yes, definitely. Release, um, we're an independent charity. We're the National Centre of Expertise on Drugs and Drugs Law. Um, And we really campaign for evidence-based drug policies, which seek to reduce the harms associated with drugs and treat people who use drugs with dignity and equality. Um, And a bit more about our organisation, we operate drug and legal services as part of Release, which provides specialist advice to members of the public. And we use those experiences of our clients to advise professionals and policymakers. Um, I did just want to name drop a couple of famous previous clients. Um, So we supported John Lennon and Yoko Ono in 1968 with their cannabis possession arrest. Also, we have an expert witness service where we can provide testimony in drug cases. And aside from that, and kind of leading into my role, we produce a lot of research around disproportionate policing, which is going to be a big topic of conversation today, patients' access to treatment, harms caused by our drug laws generally, global best practice. And during COVID, a lot of the work that we did moved to monitoring changes in the drug market during the pandemic and and seeing how it's changed. What do I do? I develop the research and policy plan for the organisation. I'm directly involved in a lot of our research. I develop policy briefings and papers and operate national networks. And you asked who we work with. We worked with a lot of great other organisations. First and foremost, we talk to people who use drugs, which I know, Rebecca, you know, you champion is extremely important to discuss experiences with people who have got lived experience, frontline drug service workers, universities and other organizations that operate in the space there are many amazing organizations but to name a few transform harm reduction international international drug policy consortium and some of the major treatment providers 
Excellent, excellent. And yeah, re Release um, have done some, yeah, you've done really, really good work and your kind of publications, particularly around the kind of disproportionality are something that, you know, we use in teaching all the time and something that's kind of really accessible publications. Hope we're going to chat about those um, soon. Jesse, over to you. Thank you, Rebecca. Yeah, so I've been working on the Wirestock project uh, since December 2019. And the actual project itself has been running since 2013. And it's basically aimed to kind of give young people the tools to interact with police during the stop and search as safely as possible, reducing the level of harm that can come to them uh, during a stop and search and any kind of encounter with police. So a lot of that kind of involves, um, like we partnered with Release and Wirestock, a lot of that work um, involves kind of working particularly in the West Midlands um, and in London across schools, kind of youth clubs, various kind of organisations and kind of community activist group groups as well. It's actually quite interesting because in the past year and a half since the pandemic, we've still been working, but in very different ways because the pandemic has given us something to um, think about in a different way. I guess it's given us new ways of working, new ways of thinking just because of um, it's kind of laid bare just the ways in which policing has been carried out over the past couple of years I mean we'll go into some stats a little bit later but yeah that's just to give you an idea of kind of what Wirestock has been doing so we do a lot of workshops with young people kind of forming them of their rights um, so we have the Wirestock app as well the search acronym uh, which is kind of quite a useful tool in knowing what to do when you are being stopped and searched and how to get out that as safely as possible. We always, our kind of position is kind of harm reduction. So how we, can we get the young person out of that kind of encounter as safely as, and as quickly as possible? While we don't want them to be in that situation, obviously we're kind of very much aware that the level of policing in this country, that's, that's going to be the case. I'm looking forward to kind of having this chat I'd be interested to know about kind of how things have changed with COVID because I think it has initiated lots of different ways of working. You know, I know that, um, you know, from our side, thinking about how we engage with people as well. So I think it's really important to kind of highlight those differences and, and things like that. And, um, you know, the, the work that you do within communities, both, you know, release and why stop. Um, is really important work uh, and I'm really glad to have the opportunity to chat more about that today. So we want to talk about policy and the law in this episode and we're kind of interested in you know who it affects and what the impact is so we're thinking about things like stop and search, interactions with the police more generally, um, criminal convictions as well so we you know we know from your kind of great publications maybe you could say a bit more about that so what work does release do in this area then Laura so thinking about that kind of um, more kind of criminal justice and criminal convictions well and I'm sure it won't be a surprise to any of the listeners of the podcast but in terms of when we're thinking about who drug policy and drug laws in particular affect um, we know it doesn't affect people equally and a lot of releases work is focused on this issue one of our major papers the color of injustice uh, which focuses on the racial inequity in drug law enforcement in particular. And actually, the charity was founded in 1967. And one of the reasons for the organisation being set up was because the founders saw the racist elements of policing with newly arrived migrants, people of colour being repeatedly searched and arrested by police and 
We sadly know that this continues today. Why a drugs charity would be so interested in doing work around stop and search in particular is because we know that drugs dominate stop and search. Over 60% of searches, I know we'll talk about that later, under main police powers. And this really dwarfs the search for weapons, uh, which is only 16% in comparison, and stolen goods, which is only 10% in comparison. And I don't know if the public is necessarily aware that drugs really does dominate that space. I don't think that's communicated enough. So we know that it's about drugs. We know that it affects ethnic minority individuals. The Home Office's figures for stop and search tell us that, well, if we look at 2019-20, the most recent annual figures we have, that uh, Black, Asian and minority ethnic people were four times more likely to be stopped and searched than white people. And we know that this is more pronounced for Black people who are nine times more likely to be stopped and searched than white people. And this disparity gets worse when we look at younger age groups and when we look at searches in affluent areas. Um, so there's really a lot going on. Some people question the nine times figure, this national figure. But what we can't escape is that in almost every police force area, black people are more likely to be searched than white people. Um, and this is despite surveys telling us, trusted self-report surveys, that black people are less likely to use drugs than white people. And I'm sure it will be part of our discussions today. So what is driving this disparity? It can't be justified. You know, black people are using at a lower rate than white people. Um, mm. So extremely concerning and disturbing to us. We know that um, London is a concern in terms of the volume of searches. So mm. uh, we know that the Metropolitan Police conduct 48% of all searches in the most recent stats. That's mm. controlling for the size of London. It still has the highest arrest and stop rate of any force. So that's still controlling for the kind of resident population. And it continues, not only are black people more likely to be stopped, but also they're more likely to have force used against them, handcuffs used during arrest, tasers drawn, bit hoods and bike guards more likely to be used. So this is all evidence from the HMIC FRS, uh, who do their report, the 2021 report was extremely enlightening, so extremely disturbing uh, there. But if we also think about, like you said, criminal convictions, the Lamy review from 2017 and our own research in The Colour of Injustice tells us that the disparities that start in stop and search continue to prosecution, conviction and sentencing. I believe the figures that to receive a prison sentence for a drug offence it, the likelihood is 240% higher for ethnic minority offenders compared to white offenders, which is absolutely shocking. And we know even less about intersectional experiences, but release are trying to spotlight the disproportionate incarceration of black women for drug offences compared to white women. Um, so, you know, the statistics are a really disturbing picture. And I know that Jesse works directly with people who've been affected by Stop and Search, and we'll talk about, you know, their personal experiences of it. What we do quickly, and then obviously we'll come to why stop, which is a really important part of what we do. Some of the things that Release does about this are that we're external reviewers for the HMIC FRS reports, which independently review the effectiveness of police forces. We're on the College of Policing Stop and Search Reference Group. Obviously, we published the papers, uh, as we said, The Colour of Injustice, which looked dig deeper into the available police data um, to find that cannabis possession, for example, is a real big root of the inequity that we see. Uh, we've also got Talking Drugs, edited by releases in Marnie Robinson, where we try to reach the media, and Jesse writes a lot of articles for that as well. 
And the next project that we're doing, something that we want to look at, myself and Jesse, is looking at strip search in particular and to look at how that impacts young people and how it can be justified when we know that stop and search is extremely ineffective. Only 20% of searches result in the you know, intended or desired item being found uh, in the most recent stats. And then the most important is that we run Y-Stop, which obviously Jesse will talk more about. Yeah, Jesse, definitely. I mean, you do. I mean, Laura, first of all, how you know, lots of really, really important work there. And I think, you know, again, I'd love to pick up on the publications as well with the kind of really aptly named title, like The Colours of Injustice and the Numbers in Black and White. So, Jesse, over to you then about the Why Stop project um, and, you know, how. What are the key issues faced by young people then who are, who are kind of being stopped by the police? I mean, there's a kind of variety of issues that are kind of coming up when young people are being stopped by police. I think one of the things is just that encounter in, in and of itself is very violent. Even when kind of the stop and search goes well, like quote unquote, which essentially is just like kind of them just walking away and and not finding anything, not following up, not kind of putting anyone in handcuffs. It's still that interaction in itself can be quite traumatic for a lot of people just because of the imbalance of power in those situations. And the fact that you've got kind of young black people who are, have historically been seen to be deviant by kind of the police in this country. That is something that has been said by kind of various kind of figures within various kind of institutions of government so if that view is held by kind of people within power then how how is it impacting young people and young people that I've interacted with who have been through stop and searches whether that's kind of through a car stop whether that's through kind of a stop for reasonable grounds whether that's through section 60 whether that's through strip search all of them gone through some sort of trauma mm. and that's something that they've had to live with and I think what makes it even harder and what's what exacerbates that trauma is when the people that are charged with their care don't listen to them and don't believe them particularly when you have teachers colluding with police in schools as well that's been a major issue quite recently where they've been uh, alerted to the police because the teacher smelled cannabis on them and obviously even that as a um, as a reasonable grounds is quite shaky in itself so that's something that is a lot happening a lot in schools. So that's why kind of a lot of organisations are campaigning against normal police in schools because that is directly impacting kind of young people, particularly in a space where they're meant to be learning. And we talk a lot about kind of expulsion rates are increasing in schools. The presence of police in schools only seeks to criminalise. That's not education. Uh, that's criminalisation right there. And that's the issue with stop and search is that it leads to criminalisation. So even if a young person is found with a bag of weed or half a joint on them, does that mean that they should then have that go on their record until until their 30s or even even later? And, and those are the things that we're challenging within Stop. And a lot of the work that we do is just listening to young people as well um, and just holding that space for them because there aren't many spaces where they are being listened to. The media aren't listened to them. The media will talk a lot about the stats. So the, the black people are nine times more likely to be kind of stop and search stat. That is something that is in the media every other week now. It's gone to the point where me personally, I gloss over those articles because it's just saying the same thing over and over mm. again. But what I'm not seeing in these articles is the personal experience, the actual human experience, what it actually means to go through a stop and search what it means mm. to have to live 
with it afterwards, what it means to not have someone listen to you, what it means to not have someone even believe you and be on your side. And that can be teachers and parents as well. And that's why a lot of this is kind of, it's a community, it's a community effort. It means working with teachers, working with parents, uh, working with community activists, working with people that have a stake in the care of young people's lives. Um, so yeah, that's kind of pretty much kind of, mm. uh, how young people are impacted by Stop the Search. And that's what kind of why Stop is there to kind of do. Yeah. And yeah, what important, incredible work that you do do. Um, and, you know, I think this is something, I think you're right, you know, we, uh, personally, I've been teaching on this topic for years. Mm-hmm. And it is something that when you speak to groups of students about it, you they mm-hmm. are, you know, completely appalled and shocked and disgusted mm-hmm. at that. It's not just the stop and search, which, as you say, Jesse, is is violence enough in terms of um, people's privacy and people's, you know, human rights. Um, but it's kind of what happens afterwards. And I remember in the uh, Lamy report as well saying, you know, if you're caught um, supplying drugs as a teenager, you know, you couldn't. This will affect your life forever. You know, like for the jobs that you're going to get. Um, and things and what you say there really importantly that you know people in positions of power um, you know you there's a huge mistrust and there's a huge kind of barriers there to kind of young people um, and you I suppose that feeling like those institutions are conspiring against you if it's within your education if it's within the police as well have you had any conversations with the police or about why like you know do you work with the police have you had these conversations um me personally I don't work with the police um and that's the position of why I stop as well and that's just my position personally and professionally uh, not to work with or collude with the police because mm. that would diminish the trust that the young people and the community have placed in us um so we yeah. wouldn't take any money from them. We wouldn't be seen working with them in an organisation. We wouldn't do a joint workshop with them and no, getting just... them to do their job better. Yeah, I, I think that's very important as well because when you kind of start to observe the police and their behaviour from, from the outside and you look at the kind of history as well and the legacy of their policing. Um, I live in Tottenham and Tottenham has been the centre of so many injustices dating back to the 80s because of policing in this in this country because of policing in this city you, you just have to look at worries mark duggan yeah there's so many as well in the 80s those are just a couple of injustices that have happened in tottenham there have been so many others across the country across the years you only have to just go back to last week to see the injustices um that have been kind of carried out already and that was literally just a murder of a kind of teenage boy where the police have really said that that is not deemed to be racially motivated. There's just a history of just cover-ups, there's just a history of deception and all of these things. So that is the behaviour of the police and that has been the behaviour of the police. Um, mm. And I can't see it any other way than that, just because of the history of, of what I've seen and what I've seen other people go through. And that's what I base everything off, is of personal experience over everything. Like, and stats and everything are great, but they can only back up the personal a lot of work uh, in kind of youth offending services as well because yeah. we realise a lot of people that have been kind of through the criminal justice system and have been stopped and searched gone all the way and 
we, we, we've also realised that it's a multi-layered issue as well. So if someone's been kicked out of school, then they're more likely to be stopped to search as well because of mm -hmm. kind of just various kind of associations that, and links that the police make uh, because of that. So, yeah, the work, the work is always developing and it's always changing. Um, and a lot of that is because of the way in which the police are policing. So COVID has made us have to adapt and react. And so has the Black Lives Matter protest last year, where reports of people being stopped and searched because they fit the description of someone that assaulted someone at the protest, where there was a heavy presence anyways. There were people that was kind of stopped and searched afterwards who were nowhere near the vicinity of those protests take, taking place. So we've had to react to that as well. Um, and that's part of what this job is. It's also reacting to kind of how the police kind of behave. Yeah, so you work very much independently from the police and, you know, and intentionally in order to support young people. Why stop, isn't it, as Jesse's explained, is, is very, very distinct from it. But I guess from the policy perspective, and I guess from my perspective, we, whilst we would definitely prefer that drug policy was not in the criminal justice sphere at all, whilst the reality is that drugs are under police control under these current laws, the policy side will work with the police um, and police and crime commissioners. And everything that we do on that side is to try and reduce the harm of drug law enforcement and minimise the trauma, um, if at all possible, of those experiences that Jesse's talking about, the personal experiences. So... But um, you know, I definitely see why you ask if release would work with the police because we advocate for decriminalisation, so to take mm -hmm. drug use in particular out of police hands, and we um, mm -hmm. you know challenge stop and search very strongly for being racially disparate and causing the traumas Jesse's discussing, mm -hmm. and for being an extremely ineffective strategy, uh, as some of the statistics would point to earlier, um, and we criticise the government spending on drug law enforcement, which is estimated to be 1.6 billion a year. And even the Home Office admits when it reviews its drug strategy that that has little impact on the availability of drugs. So I understand why you asked that, but it's kind of a mixed response from police, but police are not a homogenous group either. So from my own personal experience, you know, some police are open to criticism of stop and search and some are open to decriminalisation. And some are open to the idea that the police are not best equipped or suited to respond to incidents relating to drugs. Some, you know, will go that follow that notion. That, you know, on the coal face, you see the figures of stop and search, which incidentally, if we go by the Metropolitan Police's dashboard, which provides monthly stop search figures, stop and search seems to be increasing during the pandemic. And I know we've got calls to our release helpline about stop and search and drug arrests during the pandemic, which kind of shocked us because why would the police prioritise that during a global health emergency? Stop and search can be seen as a way to evidence officers' effectiveness. And that's really the only explanation we can think for why stop and search has increased, nay, you know, grown exponentially during the pandemic you know to evidence their effectiveness so it's maybe a tale of two halves but there are pockets of innovation and this is where we see diversion schemes starting to roll out across the country and you know I should say that these are led by police and the police and crime commissioners offices in the absence of any government leadership on this issue so some police forces across the country are leading diversion schemes which are seeking to divert young people away from the criminal justice system 
for drug use and possession. So there are uh, pockets of innovation as well, but you know, we the issues with stop and search um, and disproportionate policing are clear. So we will work uh, with the police, but always to try and reduce the harms with these interactions with the police as far as possible. What do we need to do then? <laughs> you know, like what are your key messages, I guess, in terms of, you know, these figures? Also, as you say, Jesse, it's not just about the figures, but it's about people's experiences that we really need to get across. We need to show the impact of this, the impact that this is having on young people's lives. You know, what what can we, you know, like what do you see as the key things that, that we can do um, either as a collective or, you know, within society to address this? I mean, there, there's so many ways you could look at that question to improve that situation. I mean, firstly, it would be listening to young people and to, to hear their experiences and to hear them talk about their experiences and what it means to be stopped and searched by the police. Because uh, it's some, and whilst it's obviously not something that uh, young people experience alone, like adults experience it as well, but young people are more likely to go through that stop and search. So it's about understanding why that happens and what we can do to to limit that as well and what we can do to support those that have been through that kind of trauma in in itself uh so that's the first thing and that kind of can be played out in so many different ways so that's teachers not colluding with police in schools that's kind of teachers and guardians and parents listening to young people as well and not necessarily saying that oh um well you must have been up to something bad if you if you've been stopped and searched no it's not we shouldn't take that stance where we're immediately blaming the young person in that position because they're not the ones with the power. Um, so that's 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 the first thing. Secondly, personally, I, I kind of I'd like to live in a world where stop and search doesn't exist at all, where even for kind of reasonable grounds that that doesn't exist, there are better ways apparently to kind of to police. Um, and um and again, that's a that's a much bigger question about the role of police in, in society in itself. Mm. And whilst I can't say I'm an abolitionist as such, and I do I do believe in those kind of principles and those values, and I would like to live in a world where there is there is no police. And I think it is about imagining a world and kind of being more imaginative as well. I think when working with young people in the position that I kind of work in, I, I guess I have that kind of space to do so. But obviously, I know that within the context of where we are right now that seems so it seems quite far off to live in a world without police but I think at least what we can do at this very very moment in time is work towards a state where we can at least kind of reduce the role that police play in our society so that means when it comes to stop and search that's where we can start so reducing how how much the police have when it comes to uh, stop and search, when it comes to just responding to kind of certain kind of crimes in our neighbourhoods as well. Um, so that I think that's where it kind of begins. And I think on the other side of things, you know, your kind of sense of empowerment to young people as well. That's something that I found pretty inspirational that your, you know, the Why Stop project and what you do is about empowering young people to know their rights and what to do in certain situations. Yeah. So how, how can you explain a little bit more how you do that in your work? Yeah, so I mean, we've got a simple kind of search acronym. It's just a simple tool that will help to get young people out of that stop and search as quickly and safely as possible. So first one would be to stay calm because that just kind of gives young people more control in that situation. Um, and it's not necessarily saying that how the police kind of 
respond to you or approach you, how you every right to react in a way that you do because the police shouldn't be kind of encroaching on your privacy and liberty in that way. But there's also something to be said about how you respond to that and how you can kind of take control of the situation and trying to even the playing field when it comes to the balance of power in that situation. The second one would be eye contact as well, just keeping eye contact with the kind of officers who are stopping you. That just removes any kind of any doubt, any suspicions that they may have. I know that police have said in the past that, oh, they, they weren't, they, they were looking around, they kind of uh, kept looking all over the place and that was deemed as, oh, suspicious behaviour. So body language is very important. Like looking at them in their eyes just shows that you're confident as well, that you've also got nothing to hide and they can kind of see you on a human level as well. They will try to intimidate kind of young people so just looking them in their eyes removes that intimidation element yeah so you've got this the stay calm you've got the eye contact um and then you've got the asking questions as well asking questions just treating it like a conversation that's very important as well just because you want to make sure that they're not interrogating you as much as, as they'll try to do in that situation they've got to prove beyond reasonable doubt as to um why you've been stopped as well so it's not just selling you proving to them that you haven't done anything wrong is them proving to you that that they've got reason to stop you in the first place. Um, it's mm. just unfortunate that most times, if you go by the, by the statistics, that they don't have any reasonable grounds to stop young people. So asking questions could be anything from kind of who are you? So asking for their badge number, their ID number, what police station they come from, why I'm being stopped on that day and what and on what grounds as well. That's very important because it could be a section 60, which means that they don't need reasonable grounds to stop you. Or if it's just under the PACE Act, then yes, they can they can still um, they still need reasonable grounds. Um, and then it's obviously recording and and asking for a receipt as well. That's very important. So people are allowed to record a stop and search, um, even though the police may kind of try and obstruct that. We've kind of heard of cases of kind of people of police knocking phones out of people, people's hands while they're searching them. Um, and we would say that it's okay to film a stop and search and, and to record it as long as you aren't obstructing the search. So we would say that if someone is close by, maybe a friend or kind of just someone walking by, we always ask and urge that they kind of film and record the stop and search as well. And that's something that you are allowed to do. Um, you can, you can. It's it's probably advisable to alert the police that you are just taking your phone out to record. Um, but if you're doing it from a safe distance, then you've got every right to record it as well. Um, that's that's very important as well. And the police also have been known to intimidate people in those situations. <laughs> you've got every right to to record it, and it says more about their behaviour if they're trying to deny you of your kind of your 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 civil right actually yeah hold to account that's just the whole process of the search acronym is to hold the police to account so in that situation as i said whilst they're asking you to prove your innocence what holding to account is you asking them to prove why they're stopping you on that given day um so those are just the ways in which we can try and empower young people and we just do that in the workshop i i and me just kind of repeating that to kind of various young people up and down the country over the past almost two years has kind of it's really kind of stuck in my brain now as well so that now I mean even before I kind of was in this job I kind of knew kind of how to kind of go through a stop and search but not not in this way um I, I, I know now that I'd handle it very differently just because everything I just said has been ingrained in me so much so I just hope that kind of the young people that I interact with feel the same way after after kind of we do those workshops so that's just 
one of the ways in which we kind of empower young people. Amazing. Re- yeah, really good to hear. And I'm really glad that our listeners are getting to hear that as well, that message um, for things that might affect them. Yeah. Uh, Laura, back over to you then. So Release runs a, a legal outreach service. What are the main issues that people are contacting um, you about there? Yep, we run uh, 10 legal outreach services currently across drug treatment um, and homeless service centres in London. And these were set up because of that intersection between the risk of substance use among people in living deprivation, um, which could, you know, and is often due to the trauma associated with living in deprivation um, and poverty. And so this outreach service um, supports about a thousand people a year. And the main issues that we see um, and that our release solicitors help people with is accessing their benefits, um, accessing housing and helping them with their debt issues. So this is something that our outreach service tries to do, which is remedy some of the financial and social issues that we know people who use drugs are, are much more likely to face. So it definitely goes beyond issues just around you know the legal status of drugs it's um a lot of confounding issues in other parts of their lives and that's something that we want to do which is improve the quality of life more generally and we often say that even if drugs were legalized tomorrow which is one of the long-term goals of course that wouldn't rectify all of the issues that people who use drugs face it would just remove one tool of oppression um, that's used against people of colour and people who are living in deprivation, but it wouldn't fix a lot of these issues that are really deep rooted. So the legal outreach service is one of the ways that we try and improve um, our clients' lives. I know that you, so I know you're both passionate about drug policy reform and there was the 50 Years of Failure and Initiative. So um, can you just tell us a little bit more about that? Definitely. The, um, The key message of our Uh, 50 Years of Failure, um, MDA at 50 um, campaign centres around the 50th anniversary of the misuse of drugs at 1971. So on the 27th of May 2021, um, the Act was 50 years old and it's really a campaign to say that this Act has damaged people, communities, it's undermined science and it's entrenched the social injustices that we've been talking about today. Many of your listeners would already know, but the Act regulates controlled drugs. It gives us our three drug classes, A, B and C, and it defines the offences under the Act. So possession, supply, possession with intent to supply, import, export, cultivation, etc. And to enforce the law, the police have the powers to stop, detain and search people on the reasonable suspicion that they're in possession of a controlled drug. So that's the act in a nutshell. But what we were trying to say with hashtag 50 years of failure is that this is not working. We all know that. But even if we look to national statistics, we have got record high levels of drug related death throughout the UK. Drug use is high. We've got high rates of bloodborne viruses like HIV, but especially hepatitis C, which is actually increasing in parts of the UK, uh, like Glasgow, are having its worst outbreak in three decades, I believe. And there are also more drugs infiltrating the market with all of the synthetic new and novel drugs. So that is a big failure by anyone's measure. The partners on this uh, campaign are Transform Anyone's Child, Leap UK and Drug Science. Some of the things that you can go and have a look, I would encourage listeners there are 50 voices, so that's 50 videos for um, of people campaigning for 
drug reform and you can go and listen to them and their stories on the 50 voices page there's also a campaign to write to your mp which is ongoing so you can still do that so have a look asking mps to sign up to a statement of support to say that this act is not fit for purpose and it's harmed people rather than helped people. We've already got over 50 MPs who've signed up, and this is a cross-party issue from all different parties, so that's really good. And we've got other things happening throughout the year, so I did want to say to keep an eye on Releases Socials and on Transform and Releases website, because there are events coming up throughout the year to kind of mark this 50th birthday of something that's caused a lot of harm to a lot of people. Um, So it's a really good time now more than ever to say we can't afford for another five minutes of this let alone another 50 years yeah absolutely and yeah really encourage people to kind of engage with that debate and initiative there are there any other things I know that so many people feel really passionately about this so are there any other ways that you know people can get involved in this movement any ways in which people can support and you know engage in activism so I think with Y-Stop, we, what we do is uh, we do training for people so that they can actually go out and kind of deliver workshops themselves on, um, on knowing your rights. So we call that peer-to-peer training. We do also have a volunteer network as well. When we are doing kind of events and workshops, then sometimes we'll have kind of volunteers present as well. So that's one way of getting involved. Uh, also kind of just looking within your local community um, and seeing kind of what kind of community groups are kind of working in your local area and seeing what ways you can help as well. Sometimes that is kind of donating time or money. Um, that's kind of just one of the ways in which getting involved kind of can help. Just spreading the word as well, amplifying some of those voices that are unheard, um, amplifying some of the work that is being done by various community groups and charities across the country and in the local community well is very important. There's groups such as kind of Stopwatch, which are obviously the um, monitoring kind of the police monitoring group as well. There's a Northern Monitoring Police Project as well. They do the same work in Manchester, I believe. Mm-hmm. And there's organisations such as Forefront as well, which kind of obviously work with young people and help to empower them as well um, and seek social justice as well. Those are just various organisations that are doing some outstanding work. Um, and yeah, it's just important that kind of their work is kind of highlighted as well um, and kind of yeah those are just just a couple of organizations that people can kind of support in so many different ways and just to add to that Jesse, if you're a university student and you're not already you could become a member of students for sensible drug policy ssdp yeah. or if there isn't one in your university you could maybe set one up mm-hmm. and you can always get in touch with the release visit our website to learn about more that's happening and visit the mda at 50 and Transform's website as well. And another thing young people could do if they are making a drugs purchase is to complete our anonymous coronavirus drug purchase impact survey. That's on Release's website, completely anonymous. And it's something that, like I said earlier, we are using just to monitor the drug market over the pandemic, seeing how it changes during restrictions and lockdown periods versus when the lockdowns are easing and lifting. And our interim report is available if listeners would like to see what we've found so far. But something we're definitely finding is that the market is extremely resilient, which comes at no surprise to any of us working at release or in this field. But it's really important that people complete that survey just so we can know um, what's happening to the market. So you've kind of both talked about drug policy a little bit then. Just a roundup from both of you, you know, what you think are the key changes required 
to improve drug policy. And connected to that, I'm asking everybody, like, how optimistic are you that we're, that change will come? In terms of my optimism and how things will change, I, I try and remain hopeful, as hopeful as possible. Um, like I said before, I'd like to live in a world where there isn't police and where yeah, the role of police has completely changed um, and, and diminished in, in a lot of ways. So that involves stop and search, that involves kind of just responding to kind of just the various kind of incidents that they respond to where their, their role actually isn't needed. In terms of my optimism of getting there, <laughs> it, it, it depends on the day of the week for me. But but generally, I, I, try, and, I try and stay as hopeful as possible. And I think doing this work allows me to do that um, in some small way anyway. That's, that's yeah, that, I, think, I think that's as far as my kind of optimism. Yeah, no, that, I, I agree with you. I remain hopeful. And I think, yeah. you know, this project, and again, same as you, engaging with people, getting people's voices heard, amplifying that, that those voices, you know, I certainly feel a sense of empowerment over the movement, you know, in, in terms of that. Laura, uh, what about you then? So following on from Jesse, you know, what do we need to do to improve um, drug policy and what can we do about the situation? Obviously, we need to start listening to young people, listening to these experiences, really question, is it worth it when we see such trauma being caused by stop and search in particular and such poor outcomes, you know, very ineffective policy by every kind of measure? And what we would say to improve policy, we've got a kind of number of areas that we focus on. So number one, decriminalise drugs. That meaning meaning to end the criminal sanctions for drug use and possession. We've done a lot of work in this area release as well, where we looked at 30 countries' experiences of ending those criminal sanctions in our policy paper, A Quiet Revolution. And so we know that actually these countries did not experience you know, long-term increases in drug use, but actually they experienced a wealth of benefits, especially health benefits associated with decriminalising drug use. It's not really, here's some of my optimism, it's not really out of reach because we actually already have this with our Psychoactive Substances Act 2016, which is part of the problem. We've got a very confused kind of policy. Two of the acts are in conflict with one another. So if, for example, there's no penalty at all, no possession offence, civil or criminal for the possession of certain types of new or novel psychoactive substances, uh, but their supply can carry up to seven years in prison. But with our Misuse of Drugs Act that we were talking about earlier that's just celebrated its 50th anniversary, you know, there are extremely tough sanctions for people who are caught in possession with drugs in class A, B and C, all extremely harsh, we would argue. Um, so I think it's been described before as what we've got at the moment is a criminal justice potluck if you're found with a white powder in your back pocket, if it, depending on which act it would fall under, you know, really affects your chances and why should that be? We already know from David Nutt's infamous harm scale work that the drug laws bear almost no relation to the harm associated with that drug. We see that with alcohol being, you know, the most harmful drug to individuals in society and that is you know, legalised and regulated. And so what we want is decriminalisation first and foremost of drug use. What we also want to kind of convey is that drug dependency and drug use disorders are an atypical consequence of drug use. So we know that 90% of people use drugs recreationally and do not have any drug use disorders. And I think it's really good 
for people to recognize that people use drugs for a variety of reasons, relaxation, pleasure. I know that you, one of your uh, podcast episodes, Rebecca, talked about that. And we need to talk about that more, that there are a variety of reasons people can use drugs. And for you know 10%, there may be a dependency and there should be help available for those who want it. But that it is a rare, rarer consequence than maybe the public would expect. But if they want help, we need to make that help available and we need the funding to do it. And this is where the 1.6 billion for drug law enforcement comes back. As Jesse said, why isn't that funding going into schools to stop exclusion when the evidence is there to show how much exclusion for young people can drive them into participating in drug use or the drug market more generally? Why isn't it there to prevent um, adverse childhood experiences, trauma, that we know makes people a lot more likely to use drugs and become dependent? And where is the kind of resources for treatment and harm reduction measures if people do want them? And we always say that choice is really important and we need to meet people where they are. So that's really important, the funding. And we need a suite of harm reduction. So all of the things that we know from evidence around the world helps people with drug use disorders, drug consumption rooms, heroin-assisted treatment, drug checking services, We need everyone to be carrying naloxone, which is the medication that can uh, reverse an opioid overdose, especially important when we're seeing such record high levels of drug-related death in the UK. We need opioid substitution therapy, um, which many people will know by methadone, but there are other um, medicines available, of course. But what we need to do is make this widely available, accessible and stop its demonisation. Um, There's a real stigma for people who are using uh, methadone, for example, but we know that it's key to saving many lives. And the key is for the choice. So not putting abstinence-based treatment on a pedestal, but providing for abstinence-based treatment and maintenance-based treatment, which is, you know, like OST, and other harm reduction options available like the drug checking. We think that treatment goals should be really individualised and there should be a lot of choice available. We also need politicians to champion drug policy reform. That's what we need. I think David Cameron called drug policy the elephant on our doorstep in 2002, and we are still yet to see real change. And I think um, that there's a false impression that the public wouldn't support reform or isn't open to reform. But we've seen with cannabis in particular that there has been a lot of support and that um, Sadiq Khan has promised a review into cannabis reform in his successful re-election campaign and even surveys are showing us that I believe it's two-thirds of people in London for example support legalization for recreational use so really we don't understand why there's a fear of you know the public not supporting these policies when it really the needle has shifted in that respect I think we need to do more organisations like Asset Release in kind of communicating to the public. So thank you for having us on this podcast, Rebecca, because we need to communicate more that the drug laws that we have were founded on who is perceived to use drugs rather than the relative harms of the drugs themselves. Um, And that's a really big problem. And that there's no relationship between tougher sanctions and how many people use drugs. And should we really be using how many people try or use drugs as the measure of a good policy? Shouldn't it be how many people die from drug use? How many people are dependent on drugs? How many people's lives are ruined by being entered into the criminal justice system, which is the biggest gateway drug of all into further drug use and offending? Um, And as Jesse already spoke about earlier, that a long-term goal is um, 
perhaps to take the drug market out of the criminal justice system entirely with legalization and regulation, but release, uh, you know, we do believe that this will be coming down the road with cannabis, but we are always thinking about social and racial justice. And we want to be sure that if that step is taken, that we learn kind of mistakes from countries that have done this already and ensure that the people of colour who've been, you know, locked up by these policies are not shut out of the cannabis industry. So that's something that's really important to us. And even longer term, as Jesse said, we need to maybe reevaluate the system entirely and question traditional incarceration and its effectiveness. I guess following on from that, I guess, because I've been talking about abolition a lot, is to plug um, abolitionist futures as well, uh, their collaboration of community organisers um, and activists based in uh, the UK and Ireland um, are basically trying to kind of work towards a future where there are no prisons, um, punishment and police um, in, in and the castle state as it kind of currently exists. Um, and I think supporting organisations such as that is important. And, that's, and one way we can do that is just simply by reading more about what abolition is and what that means and reading up about the misconceptions and kind of and not necessarily reading into oh it, it just being a kind of cool meme at the moment but actually something that can be a framework that can actually that people can live by um that's what i believe as well it's some it's a framework that people can live by when you start to imagine alternatives um and that can happen at every level as well that can begin in schools i think if we start to imagine how you can how you can help how you can help children in schools instead of criminalizing them i mean i re i remember going to school my school wasn't great um i i'm 31 now so i think i was just at the precipice where they were starting to criminalize children a little bit more but i remember in my earlier years particularly in primary school where there was there was a more, a more urgent need to help young people who were who were in dire situations as opposed to um as opposed to criminalizing them that's not always been the case obviously We've seen, um, obviously, how kind of uh, uh, the Windrush generation were treated in schools in the 60s, 70s and 80s as well. Um, and that's something that still continues to date, but just in a very different way. But I think if we can start to imagine what schools can look like instead of what they currently are um, and what kind of other areas of society can look like as well, this that's how we can start to build towards that future. So it's, it's, it's starting small, it's looking at things on a micro level um, and then kind of looking at the macro as well and so that does obviously begin with cannabis reform as well so how can we change policy around that um, and I think it's kind of starting small as opposed to just trying to kind of tear down the whole system in one day which obviously isn't isn't going to be possible. But I think even Jesse you've alluded to it that actually even on that micro level schools and universities as well have a lot more discretion in how they'd like to deal with, you know, incidents of drunk possession than they think. And there's no legal obligation to report, you know, students to the police. So really, we would encourage you to not do that, to call Releases Helpline if you need any advice about that. Um, but that's one of the ways, do you agree, Jesse, that this could, you know, start is actually, you know, realising you don't have to turn in family members or pupils into the police for drug possession yeah no yeah yeah yes definitely um because yeah again as you say it should always be at the teacher's discretion because the teachers are the ones that interact with these young people day in day out so the teachers would 
we should and would be able to observe what led to that young person being in possession of in drugs in the first place. So it's looking at it at a, as a multi-layered issue, not, not a single issue. So it's not just the fact that this kid decided to come in today, come into school one day with with a bag of weed on him or just a joint. Like, no, you've got to ask the questions as to why, what led to that? Um, what were the kind of conditions around that? Um, and once you start to figure that out, that's where kind of roles, that's where kind of organizations such as police can step in and help. Um, so it's not always about kind of just going straight to the police. No, like that's not always the way. There, there are other ways to do it. And I think it's just, like I said, thinking of the alternative, imagining other ways. And I think that is about being more bold. Um, and it, within schools as well, that requires teachers and governors and head teachers um, and kind of guardians and parents as well, being, being more bold and saying, actually, no, we want better for our children. And that, you know, schools are a place to protect young people. Yes, yeah, you know, that, yeah, that's exactly, the key yeah. thing, isn't it? That young people, you know, require our, our protection, you know, and all young people as well. And I think what you've both really clearly set out is that, you know, that this is this is about social justice. It's about racial justice. It's about access to um, opportunities, education, protection of young people. Um, so, you know, this this is a societal thing and a community thing um, and that, you, you know, that we all need to kind of support each other and understand that um, that people need to be treated with compassion and understanding. And we, need, you know, I think it's really key, um, as you say, to ask those questions and not impose uh, things onto young people and asking people why. Um, yeah, and supporting them, supporting them. We've, you know, we've all been young people once before. We've all broken the law. We've all done things um, that would be considered deviant. Um, that's part and parcel of growing up. And I think it's about um, ensuring that young people uh, have the life opportunities, um, you know, going forward and an understanding of that rather than a criminalisation of that. Thank you so much for joining us today. This has been such an interesting chat. Um, I know our listeners are going to really um, enjoy listening. Thank you. No, no, thank you. For thank you for having us. It's been a pleasure. And what a great episode that was, listeners. Once again, I'm inspired by our guests and the work they're doing to support and empower people and how they're driving for change. So experiences connected to criminal justice is a key area for our research and we're looking for people to share their experiences. So this could be a number of things. Perhaps it's around stop and search interactions with the police or within the courts or prisons or probation system. Perhaps it's connected to education at school, at university or even work. Do you have a possession offence, a supply offence or a cultivation offence? If so, we'd like to hear from you. We'd like to you to share your experiences with us and the impact that this has had. This is a key area for policy debate. Get in touch via our website if you do want to get involved, drugpolicyvoices.co.uk or via our email, drugpolicyvoices at mmu.ac.uk. Remember that all correspondence is confidential and for each person that takes part, you'll receive a £20 Love to Shop voucher as a thank you. So if you're interested in the different ways to take part, then please do listen back to episode five, where Melissa and I talk about this in more detail. 
We've reached the end of this episode. Thank you for listening. We'd like to credit and thank Anna Duffy at A Duffy Design for our logo and branding. This podcast was produced by Neil Scott. Ha, 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 ha.